This is a sermon brought to you by Good News Bible Church, where we believe we should love God, love others, and make disciples. We are located in Chicago's Logan Square neighborhood and invite you to join our family live every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. as we praise and worship with songs and learn about God through the study of the Bible. You can visit our website at goodnewschi.org. That's goodnewschi.org. Let's turn now to hear what the Word of God has for us this week. Good morning, everyone. At this time, God's kids are dismissed. God's kids are dismissed. It's good to see you all. If you are new, my name is Pastor Carlos Borges. Actually, my name is just Carlos Borges, but I'm the pastor of Good News Bible Church. I'm in my fifth year. You all believe it's been five years already? That's, that's, I'm getting old and stuff. So I'm getting older. I was a teenager when I started. So, Well, let's, uh, before we hear the word, let's dive into prayer, and then we're going to dive into the word. Let's pray. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you that you have revealed truth to us, Lord, that you did not stay afar, but that you empowered people to write the scriptures as the Holy Spirit moved them along. Lord, we pray that we would dive into the scripture today with our hearts, with our mind, that we would think upon uh, what we're dealing with, that we would think upon what we are, uh, how we are living, and Lord, just have it be impacted mightily by your words, Lord, that it wouldn't be just a a religious event right now, Lord, but that it would be God our Father talking to us, Lord. So we pray, Lord, that that would be the field today. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the faith that you have given us. In Jesus' name, amen. You don't have to answer out loud, but have you ever thought about like a certain year where you were at your very best? You were like, yo, I, I killed it that year. Like at the end of New Year's, I mean, when New Year's came, you were like, I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to do that again. I don't know what age it was or what grade in school and what acts of amazingness did you do, but let me tell you about mine, because mine stood out very much. It's been downhill ever since. Sorry, family. I don't mean to talk bad about you all. My best year was sixth grade. The best version of Carlos was sixth grade Carlos. Let me tell you, I wanted to spell and be. And you know, I grew up in the hood, so I used to speak another language other than English but I still want to spell and be. Straight A, report card, highest scores in sixth grade. They gave me a $50 savings bond and told me that if I kept it in the bank for 1,000 years, it would equal $1,000. I thought that was kind of cool. I was in an auditory, 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 (laughs) I was in an auditory contest, which is like you get up and you say some type of speech. Now, back then you wouldn't believe it, but I was afraid to speak in front of people. Now I'm afraid to not speak to people, right? I have to talk to people. So then I got up there, and I didn't win it, but I just got up there, and ever since then, I always volunteered to be the person that spoke up front, conquered that fear. And then one of the biggest accomplishments of my life is I learned how to do laundry. My mom would send me with my brother and do laundry, and I started doing the math, and I was able to pinch some extra quarters to get a snack, and mom didn't know anything about it. She said, you spent exactly what, what we had. Thank you so much. I didn't go into the extra. And then lastly, at Inner City Impact for camp, they would give something called the Leadership Award. And I won the Leadership Award. 
and I have been trying so extra hard to behave to get it. And I just want to let you all know that it's been downhill ever since then. But even in my best year, even in your best year, we all made mistakes and had some bad choices. Let's go further. Even at any of our most amazing time, if you think about it, we were always struggling with sin. Sometimes our struggles with sin even like over, over controlled our mind in terms of how we thought about us being good. We knew that sin was around the corner. You see, any amazing work or action we do seems to pale in comparison to our shortcomings. They're, they're in front of us. Our good deeds often seem overwhelmed by sin. This is what people in the church for years have noticed. Martin Luther noticed this as well, and it rocked him as he tried his best to do his best to not sin. You see, during the early 1500s and the mid-1600s, the church was confronted with the feeling and thinking about what Paul wrote. Paul wrote in Romans 7, he says, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate, or for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want to want is what I keep on doing. Luther was dealing with the church culture that believed in something called purgatory or indulgences. They believed that there was a time or a place, I'm sorry, purgatory, that after you die, you would go to continually get more and more like God. And one of the ways that you can do that is you can pay indulgences. And indulgences were almost like a payment to your afterlife on your behalf. And it merited you more and more grace. And if, and if someone in your family died and they were, pretty, they were pretty bad, they were a big sinner, then you can buy indulgences on their behalf as well. And this led to people really believing in works, that they themselves can do enough good works to outweigh their sin. But just like I mentioned before, even in our best times, our sin is ever before us. And so Martin Luther did not believe that if we had to work in a checking, spiritual checking account, that we would never be able to come up, that we would always be in debt due, due to our sin. People were paying, and people still do. They pay for doing works. They pay for works in this life, in the next life, and they think they can reach God that way. But Paul speaks so clearly about the heart of sola fide, faith alone. Even in our best and in all our good deeds, Paul shows that faith alone means being saved through grace by faith. Faith alone, not works or payments of works. Join me in Ephesians 2, where this is going to become more and more clear for all of us. We're going to start with the first three verses. At Good News Bible Church, we read out of the English Standard Version, the ESV. Paul writes, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Paul explains the helpless estate. 
And I want to let you all know, I'm going to say this over and over. We really need to understand this. We must, we must know. For us to fully understand what faith alone means, you must know how desperate our estate is and was. Paul says, people are dead in trespasses that they once walked. This idea of trespass is when you step out of bounds. You go into an area that you're not supposed to go into. When it comes to sin, we definitely have gone away from God's law and into areas that we're not supposed to. And then it says the word sins. And sins is that word that means missing the mark. There's a standard. Our sins miss the mark. Before Jesus, all sinners go outside of God's design of obedience. All sinners miss the mark. No one Not one walks in bounds of God's law, and no one follows the law perfectly. You have to know this. Paul also says people are following the course or the path of the world. Before Jesus, all sinners would walk in disobedience. All sinners do not walk in obedience. There is no walking in the way of the Lord. All sinners do, really, is obey and follow the course of the world. I know a lot of times there's people that follow the course of the world, and they think that every once in a while, popping in a church or popping into some spiritual event is what God would want. But again, that's the course of the world. You do a little, you do a little bad to kind of freshen up the smell of the spiritual death that's on the inside. We have to know this. Paul also says that people are following Satan. Sinners, they do not follow God. They follow a wannabe God, a fake savior. They they follow a fallen angel who is not all-powerful. They follow a deceiver, a liar, and a hater of God. And lastly, Paul writes, he says, people are, that there is a spirit that is in not yet or unbelievers. There's a spirit. And this is a pervasive spirit that is at work in those who do not know God. This spirit works to continue and cultivate. So it works to do something. Guess what it wants to build? Unbelief. Unbelief. How spiritually dead were we before Jesus came into any of our lives? The Bible is clear. As dead as you can get. Super dead. None see God, no, not one. We were dead spiritually. And some of you all know that if someone is dead, you know, they're dead. They can't do things from there, right, from death, right? It's the same way spiritually. When someone is spiritually dead, they cannot do the acts of grace. They can't do the things of God. Because of their spiritual deadness, the sinner is unable to do good deeds. Now, I know some of y'all say, well, there's people that don't follow God who do good things. But the Bible tells us that those good deeds would not be counted as righteousness. They will not build up to heaven or a relationship with God. Paul is reminding the believers that they had an old self, that this old self lived in passions, longing and wanting of the flesh, and that these longings were carried out in body and in mind. 
Sometimes when we think about sin, we think about just what we may think or some, some of the times of what we do. But it's all of that. It's the person. The person, the whole of the person is dead in sin. Paul's reminding them of that. So he, Paul's not mean. He loves these people. He's trying to teach them. Why does he keep harping on this sin? Why does he want them to know that? This holistic description shows how controlled in death and sin we were. He wants them to understand how bad it really is, how bad the state of being without God, without a Savior, is. You know how you know something's bad or someone is struggling with something bad? When you tell them, are you going to say anything about what you just did? And what does the kid or the adult say? What did I do? Confess what? You know, people say, I'm not, I don't have to go to church. I don't, I don't remember doing anything bad in a long time. I said, oh, you just lied right there. People do not understand their sin. And if people do not understand their sin and their lack of hope to reach a perfect God, then oftentimes they will not understand why they would need to confess <clears throat> or that they did anything wrong. And this is normal in our world today. And just like one of those movies, The Sixth Sense, dead people often don't know they're dead. They just don't know. Spiritually dead people often don't know that they are spiritually dead. Our sin was so rampant in us and in our nature that it's even described as a sinful nature. So it's not like you're a person and it says part of you is sinful. It says, by, it's almost like by nature, sinful nature. You are a sinner by nature. Sinners do works too. It's not like they don't do works. They do works. But the Bible tells us that all their works are like filthy rags. You cannot clean anything with filthy rags. I don't know if you ever try to clean up stuff with filthy rags. It doesn't work. So even your so-called good deeds would not clean up the mess that you are in. You cannot clean anything with that. We must understand this. To understand faith alone, you have to understand the state of people in their sins. Because if we could earn salvation, guess what we wouldn't need? We wouldn't need faith. We wouldn't need to believe. Let's continue in verse 4. I know it's been kind of dreary and sad and really strong with that, but that's what it does. But you know the Bible does that because... Who comes in when people are dead in sin? Look at the next two words. But God. But God. Amen to that. But God. See, God comes into a problem that only God can solve and fix. It says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespass, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. But God, how many of you all know the power of those two words, but God? How many of you all know the power of that? You see, the words before, just as a reminder, were dead and trespasses, us trespasses, sinful nature, children of wrath, no hope, no chance of saving ourselves, no good works, but God. 
And all the reasons for salvation are found in who? God alone. Notice before there was no salvation speak. It was death, death, death. Sin, sin, sin. Sinful nature, sinful nature, sinful nature. Now you have, because God comes in, now you have something different. What do you have? First you have rich in mercy. I love this quote from the philosopher Clark. He says, as they were corrupt in their sinful nature and in their practice, they could possess no merit or no claim upon God. And it required much mercy to remove so much misery and to pardon so many transgressions. So the reason why God is rich is mercy because that's who he is. But the benefit it is to us is because we were so dead in our sins, him being rich in mercy can definitely answer the call of our sin nature problem. God can do it. If he only had a little bit of mercy, then we wouldn't be able to be in right relationship with him. What else does God give us? It says, great love which he loved us, even in our death. When you think about someone or something being dead, it feel, you, I don't know about you, but I always feel hopeless, right? That's why we're super sad when someone dies because it's like they're, they're, they're done, they're gone, right? But it says here that God loved us in our helpless estate. When we couldn't do anything, when we were dead in our sin and extended his great love to us. Some imagine that God might love us or save us because, well, I see why he saved that person. They have a strong personality or they're very winsome and they're going to win people towards the Lord. You ever heard people say that? Or God is going to save this person because they're an extreme extrovert and they can talk to all the other extreme extroverts that don't want to talk to anybody else, but they'll talk to the other extrovert, right? So we kind of look at like, I see why God saved that person. But family, I want to let you know that it's God's love is why he saved. He loves. Even when there's a sinful nature, when there's dead, he's willing to save. This is when God started loving us. He did not wait until we were lovable. He started loving us when we were dead in our sins. He started loving us then. He loved us even when we were dead in trespasses, providing nothing, no possibility of being lovable to him or, doing, or having any love for him. But God also says, by grace we are saved. The work of God's grace in no way involves a person's merit or ability. Remember the estate. They were dead in their sins. Dead people do not do works. Dead people in, uh, spiritually dead people do not do spiritual works. Our salvation, our rescue, our coming to the Lord, is a, is a deed that God did for the undeserving. It says that raised up with Jesus, seated us with him in heavenly places. Jesus was raised and the believer's position in the heavenly realm is in Christ Jesus. We're not in this world anymore. And then to finish that off, it says, to show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward all of us in Jesus Christ. God will never stop dealing with us on the basis of grace, and he will forever continue to unfold his riches to us throughout eternity. God does all this to exhibit and show his glory, his purpose. 
Billy Graham had a, a, a cool story that he, that he wrote about. One time he was driving through a small town, and I'm going to say something, you all might be a little worried, but Billy Graham got caught speeding. He did sin, guys. I know some of you all love him, so you got to be careful. But Billy Graham did sin. He got caught by the police. Not the police, the police. That's when you do something bad, you call it the police. That's just Humble Park 101. So he got caught by the police. And then the police officer said, gave him a ticket, and he had to go to court. You know, it's one of those small towns. That's how it goes sometimes. So and then he went to court, and the judge is there, and the judge sees him, and the judge tells him it's a $10 fine. But then the judge looks a, bit, a little bit more and says, hey, you're Billy Graham, like the famous preacher. And Billy Graham, you know, says, yes, he is. So then the judge took a $10 bill from his own wallet, attached it to the ticket, and paid Billy Graham's debt. That's great. But he also adjourned, adjourned, is that the word? Adjourned court and took him out for a steak dinner. Guys, this is how God treats repentant sinners. He pays the debt. He pays the debt. Then he also takes us somewhere in relationship with him, with closeness to him. Verses 8 through 10. It reads, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. For by, verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. There it is. This is the verse that has wrecked so many people, and it wrecked Martin Luther. He read this verse and knew it to be true, that we are not saved through our own works or indulgences, or any amount of time spent in purgatory. And how does, for by grace you have been saved through faith work? First thing you need to know is right away, that's why I spent so much time in that beginning, it's not of your own doing. It says that right away. We simply do not save ourselves. We cannot earn it. We have nothing to boast about. We can't even brag because we didn't do anything. Grace is unmerited favor. It's favor on your behalf. What else do we need to know? That it is a gift. You cannot earn it. You can't make it happen. You won't be able to boast of it, boast about it. None of us will. And what else do we need to know? That we are not even, we are not even saved by our faith. But it says that we are, faith, we are saved through faith itself, and that that is not a work, but it's grace through faith. So it's unmerited favor, but what activates that is faith. And who gives us the ability to have faith? God does. So God gives the believer the ability to have faith in what God has done for us on our behalf. The grace of God is his unmerited, unmerited favor, unearned favor given to those he has called to salvation through his love. It is his grace that saves us from sin. Romans 3.24 says, justified freely, justified means made right in God's sight, justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. 
being justified, we're, we're vindicated, we're made right, we're determined by God in his sight that we are sinless, and our sin no longer separates us from him. We can now be in relationship with him. We no longer have a sentence to hell. Grace is not earned because if we're dead in our trespasses before we know God, we would never do anything to earn it. So grace is unearned favor. Grace is free and given by God. If our good works earn salvation, then God would be obligated to pay us our due. But no one can earn heaven. So what this means is that God has chosen, God himself has chosen to bestow, to give his grace upon us. And how does he do it? He does it through faith. Now, someone wants a definition of faith. It's in Hebrews 11.1. 1. You probably heard it. It says, now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Salvation is obtained by faith in God's Son, Jesus Christ, and what he has done specifically, his death on the cross, his resurrection. But even faith is not something that we can generate on our own. Scriptures is clear that faith is a gift from God. He bestows saving faith. He, he, saving faith. he gives you saving faith and saving grace so that we could turn from our sin and be delivered from its consequences. He does all that. He gives all that. So God saves us by his grace through faith. And that's the faith that he gives us. Both, both grace and faith are gifts. And the reason why you know both grace and, and, uh, grace and faith are gifts is because salvation is from who? It's from the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So you know it comes from God. Sola fide means faith alone. It's important because it is one of the distinguishing characteristics or key points that separate true biblical gospel belief from false gospels. This is one that separates so many church families and why sometimes we just can't, we can't fellowship with a group almost that says that you can be saved by works. We can talk, we can whatever, but we, we just can't mesh spiritually because we know that it is all God's doing because salvation belongs to the Lord. It's not salvation plus anything else. And so that's why there's a divide in some churches because some believe that you can earn salvation or that you pay indulgences or you have to do certain acts to earn your way there. And Scripture is clear. And so when Scripture is clear and it's in the area of salvation, as a good church and as a good church leader, we do separate ourselves from that belief and call that false. We would say that is false. Sola fide, the doctrine of justification by faith alone, apart from works, is simply recognizing what's taught over and over in the Scriptures. Think of Abraham. How did Abraham get saved? Tells us in the scripture, says, he believed God, and he did all these things for me. No, it says, he believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's how everyone gets saved. You believe God, and it was credited to you as righteousness. And your belief in God came from God. 
I thought to close this up, I thought what would be good is to tell you my testimony. I don't think I've shared my testimony with many of you all, or you might have heard some. But the reason why I want to share my testimony, because each one of us needs to see that it's by faith alone. And sometimes when we look back and think about before we were believers, we can see that and realize that it wasn't any of our doing. As a 10-year-old, I started the summer of being a 10-year-old, I started to go to a place called Inner City Impact. I often would, I would say that I had a tough upbringing, but I had so many friends whose was a lot worse that sometimes I don't even know if I should call it that. So my mother and father, my mom had me when she was 16 and three kids by 19. And then my dad, we grew up in a Humble Park neighborhood. And all of our family, both on my mom's side and my dad's dad's side, had gang affiliation. As a child, I saw a lot of violence, you know. I saw a lot of um, uh, drug deals, seeing adults doing drugs at family parties, things like that. It uh, It was so rough that it became normal. That's how you know it's really rough, because you don't even notice what's happening. You think that's what happens everywhere, right? It just was culture. And many in people, many of the adults in my life were routine, routinely doing wrong and being respected and rewarded for, for it. And so doing the right thing as a kid, this is the weirdest thing about me growing up, doing the right thing as a kid almost felt like disobedience in my family. You guys get how weird it was? Bad was good, good was bad. Very confusing. The, and the adults in my life and extended family entrusted to guide and mold me and my brother and the children were leading and raising us in a lifestyle of pattern sin. Sin was the pattern, whether it meant sexuality, uh, talking about it, exhibiting it, uh, selling drugs, all these different things. That's just was the norm. Then one day I got invited by a friend at school to go to this place called Inner City Impact. And when I went to Inner City Impact, uh, it's this Christian youth organization, the adults were different. Uh, these adults, they love Jesus. You can tell something was different. Uh, when I went to ICI, I felt like it was like God or Jesus like invading my mind and my whole way of being. Because where, where I went to school, a lot of the kids were going through the same thing. So I, I, we really didn't know any better. Almost everybody was in the same position. So you just kind of didn't know. And if you did see something that was different, it was an outlier. It was a, it was a big outlier. So you didn't really understand it. So I saw these leaders, and they started speaking about the Bible. And I remember them speaking about the Bible and talking about God. And then I also remember when I got to see creation, and they took us outside of the neighborhood and took us to see other places. And I want to tell you something, when you grow up, when you grow up in a really rough area, you really, you see stuff on TV, but it seems like that's made up too. So you see like normal life on TV, but it seems like it's made up because that's not, that's not what you see for real, for real you know? Like in, the t- in, in TV, the, the cops are the good guys and they save the day most of the time. In my neighborhood, the cops, we as kids would even yell to the, to the drug dealers in the game, but hey, the cops are coming. Like we thought the cops was the enemy, so we were trying to help, help our family. 
you know? And so what happened is God used these people's lives and the scriptures and creation. That one time after hearing a Christian rap group rap about being sold out for God, I became a believer. And I was in sixth grade. But I want to let you all know, I put my faith in Jesus. I want to let you all know that my family life and the situation was, was still troubling. You see, as I was growing up, all throughout this, I had a baby brother named Isaac who had cerebral palsy. He couldn't walk on his own. He couldn't talk. He needed heavy care. And so growing up, I spent a lot of time taking care of my brother as my mom went to go party. And I was one of the older cousins, so we'd have all these people over. And I was just kind of taking care, taking care of his needs and, and all the other little cousins when they, when they went out for long periods of time. And I'll tell you what, I was very fearful as a kid deal, dealing with that, thinking that my brother would die on me, right? That's what I was always thinking, like he would die on me. My home life was still a mess. And then as my brother's uh, sickness, uh, his disease, I don't know what you want to call it, his condition worsened, uh, my dad stepped out and he left the home. And during this time of my life, I still was being like discipled and trained up in reading the scriptures by ICI leaders. And I remember one, one time they asked me a question. They said, do you think God can change your family? And I said, I think God can do anything, but I don't think he want to mess with these people. I don't think he want to mess with these people. That's the way I thought. Then I remember one day I woke up, and it was my mom with a shriek. And I went to help my mom, and my baby brother wasn't breathing. And so I grabbed my baby brother and put him on the, on the couch and... Um, we called 911, and by the time they came, my, my, brother, did, my brother did die. He died, he died in my arms when I, was in, when I was a little bit older in eighth grade. Soon after, soon after, we had all these Christians that came to the rescue, right? Funeral was paid for, the... The, the speaking, the, all that was paid for. And, it, and, and that Christian testimony rocked my family. They already saw change in me, but it rocked my family. And I want to let you all know that my dad, one day, remember they were still separated, he just shows up in one of the seats. And I'm just like, I'm like trying to look. I'm like, that's my dad. I was confused. I didn't know, I didn't know they let him in, you know what I'm saying? And then shortly after becomes a believer. And then my mom, she got invited to a woman's retreat by the people who helped with the funeral. She went to the woman's retreat, and she became a believer. And then my mom and dad, now as both believers, they started to date each other. It's kind of weird. They kind of, knew, they kind of know each other a little bit already, right? But they started to date each other. Then my dad was like, to be pure and to do things the way of God, he moved in with one of the ICI missionaries, and he lived with them. And they would go on dates, and they would come back at the right time. And then one day, my dad comes to, to my brother and I and says, I want to propose to your mom. Is that okay? We said, sure, you're our dad. Yeah. We said, yes. So the craziest thing, y'all, is these two people got married. But my mom's family struggles with uh, early onset Alzheimer's, so both of her parents were gone from that. So in this wedding, I got to be, I got to walk my mom down the aisle. 
And the church looked just like this, too. I got to walk my mom down the aisle. And then my dad, all his friends were gangbangers, and he said he's doing something new. So he said he wanted his best man to be my brother and I. So after I walked my mom down the aisle, I went to be my dad's best man. And I want to let you all know that that was probably the greatest, greatest day of my life. I couldn't believe it. It was amazing. And what I want to tell you all is no person, no person can do that. That's why I tell you that testimony. Each testimony, no person can do that. God does all of that by grace through faith. Real quick, my mom, all the, all the craziness that she went through, God, God reversed all of that and made her the same exact craziness, but now for God. She was someone who would challenge people. You know what she did? She started taking care of kids, of moms who did not have the husband or the, or the boyfriend or the baby's daddy in the picture, and she would watch these kids. At one point, it got to so many kids. I'm talking about like 12. And then she would grab ladies from the church, and I hope you guys heard me talk about this before, and get them to help her take kids everywhere. And she would, she would do this all the time whenever people needed help. My dad started to become a reader of the word, and I remember one time sitting in my dad's small group Bible study as a teenager, thinking that God is amazing. Remember the repentant thief when he put his faith in Jesus? Sensing the grace and forgiveness pouring out, of the person next to him, the repentant thief made a request. The thief on the cross, right? He's next to Jesus. What does he say? Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. His words were what? What would you call his words? I would, vulnerable, sincere. He's on his deathbed. He sees the Savior. Filled with faith. What, he says it. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what does Jesus do? Jesus says, truly I tell you. Today you will be with me in paradise. Whether it's my parents' testimony, my testimony, any of you all testimony, you look to God and you say, I'm, I'm dying. I'm dying spiritually. I'm dying physically every day. But you look to him and you say, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that when anyone sincerely puts their faith in your son's work, Lord, that their lives can be changed. We thank you for this idea of faith alone. Lord, we praise you for that. Because in our sinful nature, Lord, we would not turn to you. We thank you, Lord, for the testimonies that we have of putting our faith in you. And that you, given that to us, enacted in your grace and your unmerited favor, Lord, to save us. And Lord, we thank you for the confidence we can have in that belief because your word is clear. It's not dependent on our actions, Lord, but your word is clear about sola fide, about faith alone. Lord, I pray for our church family. Lord, I pray if there's anyone in this building right now that does not know you, Lord, that they would turn to you, Lord that they will realize that they do not have to earn their salvation, that they could come to you repenting of their sins, 
and you will forgive them and cleanse them of all their unrighteousness, Lord. Lord, we thank you for your gift. We thank you for your salvation. We thank you for how you saved, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a presentation of Good News Bible Church, where we equip people to love God, love others, and make disciples. To help support our mission, please visit our online giving portal through our website at www.goodnewschai.org.